And from a stone beside, a poisonous eft peeps idly into those Gorgonian eyes, whilst in the air a ghastly bat, bereft of sense, has flitted with a mad surprise out of the cave this hideous light had cleft, and he comes hastening like a moth that hies after a taper, and the midnight sky flares a light more dread than obscurity. Tis the tempestuous loveliness of terror, for from the serpent's gleams a brazen glare, kindled by that inextricable error, which makes a thrilling vapor of the air become a blank and ever-shifting mirror of all the beauty and the terror there, a woman's countenance with serpent locks gazing in death on heaven from those wet rocks. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our uh, series on the Gorgon Medusa. That's right. In the last episode, we largely just recounted what can roughly be thought of as the canonical myth of Medusa as it emerged from the classical era, based on a a few popular tellings of the myth from those days. Now it's time to get into possible origins of the myth, as well as various interpretations of the meaning behind it. Some of the meanings we've uh, attributed it over time, but uh, there there are also these cases where uh, for the underlying power of myth, it just keeps us coming back to reinterpret it. Uh, you know, there's just something about mythology in general, but especially with the Gorgon, there's something about the Gorgon myth that just keeps bringing us back, keeps forcing us to reevaluate it. Yeah, it absolutely cannot be ignored. I mean, maybe it's because you can't look at it without dying that people can't stop looking at it. It's like being told not to think about a taboo subject. Uh, and so, uh, it, yeah, it's clearly the image of Medusa is one of the most uh, obsessed over and revisited images from all of Greek mythology. Yeah, and we're going to explore a number of the different threads there. I think one of the great things about it is that all of the interpretations, I think pretty much all the interpretations we're going to discuss here, they, they certainly have uh, – you know, a strong air of truth to them, like they it feels right, and yet none of them feel like they explain it completely. There is always this sense of darkness and mystery uh, to Medusa uh, that we can't quite grasp, you know, and uh, and that's part of the uh, that's that's part of the enigma of it. Well, yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that's really the appeal of these ancient archetypes, uh, the these archetypal stories and monsters, uh, it's that they don't mean one thing. Instead, there's something that, uh, that, that kind of, uh, you know, they're a box that can be opened 20 different ways. And depending on, you know, which part of it you open, you, you, uh, you unlock different treasures from within. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I want to remind everybody that uh, one of uh, one of our key sources in this these episodes was a book by David A. Lemming. That's L E E M I N G, titled "Medusa in the Mirror of Time" from 2018. So we'll refer back to that uh, a few different times here. But we we also just uh, recommend that book for anyone who wants a deeper dive into the nature of Medusa. Now, we got a really cool etymological lesson uh, from your son, I believe, in between recording these two episodes. Yeah, yeah. This was really interesting. So I, I mentioned that he was reading a lot about mythology. Uh, and I also mentioned a, a cool comic book series uh, that he was really into titled The Olympians. And I neglected to mention the author last time, but it's George O'Connor. He's written 11 of these, each of them themed around a different god or goddess. And book two, Athena, concerns Medusa. Uh, I highly recommend those to anyone who just wants a you know a nice uh, visual representation of these myths uh, for, uh, for a young reader or just for them themselves. But another series that my son was reading, these are all things he like checked out of the library digitally uh, during this quarantine uh, period. Uh, there's a series called Science Comics, and he was reading one titled Science Comics, Dinosaurs, Fossils, and Feathers. And the book points out that one of the three uh, gray sisters who we referred to in the last episode is Dino. That's D-E-I-N-O or D-I-N-O, which can be translated as dread. So in 1840, 
1942, paleontologist Sir Richard Owen coined the term dinosaur, derived from the ancient Greek uh, dinos, meaning terrible, potent, or fearfully great, along with saurus, meaning lizard or reptile. Now, I don't think there is a stronger connection between the myth and the term, but uh, science comics uh, took the opportunity to include an image of the three gray sisters in this book about dinosaurs, which was pretty awesome. Uh, and I salute, especially since it brought yeah, you know, these two subjects that my son is super into uh, together in one book. Yeah, I never made that connection. Even when I saw the name translated at uh, Dano or Dino, however you say it, it, as meaning like terror or dread, I didn't, yeah, I didn't make the connection to the dread lizard. Yeah. So I, I thought when he first told me about it, I, I didn't believe him. I was like, what? Are you sure? And then he showed me the page. And I'm like, yep, there they are. Just popping up in, in, uh, in dinosaur books now. So, uh, you know, good for them. Well, I say let's jump right back in to, uh, to the head of the Gorgon and pick up where we left off last time. So last time you mentioned that we basically gave the outline of the myth. We talked about some of its major variations. Um, but one thing that I think we alluded to a little bit last time was the idea that there have been attempts to sort of root the myth in history to say like, uh, you know, uh, there, there are some magical elements to this myth. But basically, it, it really came from this actual historical event that happened but i'll just i'll just make up right now yeah uh lemming points out in his book that several noted individuals throughout history notably um uh, Palifatus, uh, Diodorus of Sicily, uh, Bassanius, uh, etc., have attempted to sort out the historical quote-unquote truth of the myth. And this is kind of like geomythology, the geomythology approach that we've discussed on the show before. You know, wondering what a particular myth really is about by seeking a literal version of the affairs uh, of history. With geomythology, it tends to break down to looking at fossils for the answer. Dinosaur fossils informing the shape of a dragon, that sort of thing. Now, geomythology is certainly a fascinating field, and we've discussed some wonderful ideas concerning the origins of various myths and monsters. Uh, but we also point out that it's often unbalanced to depend entirely upon geomythology because myths and monsters, you know, certainly they can be born out of, you know, actual um, extant or extinct uh, animals whose remains or, uh, you know, description one has come across. But we also have to factor in human belief, human fears, human creativity, and just the layer upon layer of human culture that often builds these things. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the thing about explanations like this that try to seek a rational real-world inspiration for some kind of mythological story or element we have is, I mean, for one thing, it's it's usually going to be highly speculative. You're, you're just trying to find a story that could fit the evidence. Rarely do we have a case where, like, from ancient history, we know that, uh, oh, we, we believe this mythical dragon existed because we found bones buried in the ground or something like that that would give you a really strong clue what the actual inspiration was. The simple way I'd put it is don't undersell human imagination, right? Like, mm -hmm. the, the fact that a strange creature or character or sequence of events happens in a myth doesn't mean that creature or character or whatever has to be based on uh, the storyteller having once seen something in the real world that shared this or that quality. A lot of times we just make stuff up like we dream up weird things. We, you know, the, the mind mutates variations of things we've experienced in life naturally. It happens in dreams without us ever having seen, you know, like a bat with human teeth or whatever it is that scared us in a dream. And so I, I think we don't uh, while it's fun to speculate about this kind of thing, we we don't have to assume that myths and all that are, are based directly on anything that happened in reality or that somebody saw. Yeah, I mean, and certainly there are plenty of examples where the geomythological approach or the purely historical approach can be very informative. Uh, monsters based on, again, previously extant species or specimens, descriptions that make their way from distant lands. Um, and, of course, many mythic exploits do have a basis, even a primary one, in actual kings and queens and, and heroes that you know, at one point in history may have been actual mortal people before, you know, the, the mythology and legend took over. But, uh, but Lemming cautions that the rationalist approach, quote, provides one sort of explanation of the meaning of the Medusa story, but tends to ignore the power of the mythic elements. 
Yeah. So examples of this would include like, you know, ancient historians saying, oh, so the story of Perseus and Medusa really comes from Perseus being like, uh, imagine there was this guy named Perseus and he was a pirate and he was trying to go to these islands in the Atlantic. One was that were each ruled by these queens who were the Gorgon sisters uh, and, and so forth like that. I would say one problem with the rationalist historical approach is that very often it seems to me to just be making things up. <laughs> yeah. So, like, how does simply making up a non-magical fictional origin story for a monster or character improve on the existing magical mythology? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and ultimately, as Lemming argues, the power of myth is is deeper than history. and And we can follow that in a couple of different directions. But first, I thought we might discuss the origin of Medusa that is perhaps uh, most fascinating in Lemming's book, that uh, of the disembodied head of Medusa and the idea that it predates Medusa's body. And I realize that sounds like some causality wrecking weirdness there, uh, which, you know, you can certainly encounter in, in mythology. But the more you think about this angle, I think the more it makes perfect sense. And here's the basic premise. The moment that really caps off the story of Medusa, as we recounted in the previous episode, is Athena's incorporating of her petrifying head into her own shield, uh, that, that Gorgonian uh, face becoming part of her own emblem. And we know that Medusa's head and the Gorgonian head itself, uh, these were common motifs on vases, sculptures, and helmets, shields, etc., were pieces of armor, and, uh, and not only for mythic heroes, but for common soldiers as well well. And what's more, this practice of utilizing the Gorgon's head predates the more evolved versions of the Medusa myth, you know, the, the, the real story-shaped elements that we refer back to again and again. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it's hard to know for sure, but it seems based on the evidence we have that before the fully formed story of Medusa existed, there was simply the Gorgonion, the magical image, a protective amulet bearing this terrifying monstrous head with grinding teeth and a lolling tongue, often tusks, uh, uh, sometimes kind of gender uh, fluid. It could be it could be female, could be male with a beard, could incorporate some kind of snake imagery in the hair, but often not. It's just generally this terrifying face. So before there was the character, there was the ritual magical image. Uh, even in Homer's Iliad, you know, one of the great literary sources giving us access to early information about Greek myths, you don't get the full Medusa story. You don't get a full-fledged character. Instead, you just get this image recurring, the image of the disembodied head of the Gorgon, which Homer describes as a thing grim and awful to behold. Hmm. Yeah, so so basically the idea is that Medusa pre-existed as a terrifying, petrifying, disembodied head. Um, like you said, sometimes the Gorgon was even bearded, it was, sometimes it was male, uh, and it was a common decoration. And then the Perseus myth comes along, uh, at least in part, to provide a backstory for the monster, to, to literally flesh her out, to give her a body so as to explain the absence of a body. So if this origin is correct, you, you'd, you could imagine cases where you'd have like soldiers hanging around the campfire and they've all got this terrifying head on their shields and somebody's looking at the shields and being like, I wonder, I wonder who that is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's easy to imagine how a lot of these things come, come around, you know, storytellers just sort of uh, coming up with something to explain it, incorporating it into some other story they heard. Uh, and that monster was the Medusa, the, the very face on your shield, that sort of thing. Or, it's, or you could also compare it to what we do in the, the modern era. With, we have, say, a, a terrifying, we'll say certainly a more fleshed out entity, but we have something like, say, um, Hannibal Lecter. And people are like, oh, this character's great. Uh, I want to learn more about him. What's his backstory? Where'd he come from? Can we have a whole book that just explains where he came from? And, uh, you know, so and you can you can look at examples of that in numerous works, you know, and you make something that appeals to people. People want to keep tugging on that thread. Well, uh, that's that's something I think a, a lot of times gets out of hand and is can be very unsatisfying because a lot of times people don't realize that the, the scarcity of a beloved element in a narrative 
uh, is exactly what makes it so beloved. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter in the original Silence of the Lambs movie, uh, I know it's not, he was a character in other stuff before that, but in, you know, the Jonathan Demme movie, I would say he's especially effective as a character because he's in the movie so little. He's, you know, he's got less than 20 minutes of screen time or whatever. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, and certainly in, in both uh, both uh, the books, uh, uh, Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, it's very that's very much the case. He's a key character, but he's not your primary character. You're not spending just oodles of time with him. The mystery remains. And so, yeah, you say, oh, I want a whole book about Hannibal Lecter. I want to know his whole backstory because he's so cool, he's so interesting, so mysterious. And then you get that and it's like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the same thing. People are like, I want a Boba Fett movie. Like, is 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 that going to be as good as you think it is? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But to bring it back to Medusa, so I think this idea that the the image of Medusa's severed head could, in fact, predate the fully formed myth of Medusa's life and, and you know, her origins and uh, and her role in the Perseus story. Uh, like, that ordering is, is interesting to consider because, it, it, again, it's something that's difficult to prove conclusively, but it does appear to be going on with a number of things in the history of myth and religion around the world. This was a point often made by uh, the people known as the, the Cambridge Ritualists. In Lemming's book, he identifies specifically the scholar Jane Harrison as one pushing this idea that many myths that we have access to today very likely emerge as a response to rituals and practices rather than as the cause of them. And of course, this would match up pretty well with the ordering of evidence that we have in the history of Medusa. Not that there was like a myth of Perseus and Medusa, which gave rise to the use of Medusa emblems on shields and armor and money and stuff, but exactly the inverse, that there was a tradition of displaying a fearsome gorgon head on objects as a kind of ritual protective magic and, you know, to scare away the bad demons, to frighten your enemies and so forth. And over time, these rituals that the art, the, the the spells gave rise to a myth to explain it. Who is this scary head? We keep stamping on things. Where did she come from? And then as the myth changes, grows more complex and develops along with uh, cultural values and interests over time. So in that, the, the, the myth of the Gorgon's head is is so ancient that Lemming points out that its its origins likely reside outside of Greece entirely. Now, we should remind ourselves that, that this is quite common in myth and religion. An idea or a deity from one culture grows into or is absorbed by another. Uh, for instance, gray-eyed Athena is said to have sprung from Zeus's head, but we can be sure that she did not emerge wholesale from the Greek imagination as, as her roots seem to go back through the various powerful goddesses of proto-Indo-European Sumerian culture. Uh, Lemming gives uh, the specific example of Aphrodite uh, and her likely connection to another and Ishtar in ancient Sumeria and Babylon. Oh, yeah. And Lemming points out a few different traditions of Gorgonian heads that predate Medusa. Heads that, that gaze out at us with bestial faces and, and petrifying eyes. Uh, they, they remind me a lot of the kind of lion face one makes in, in uh, yoga. But also you see similar faces that are made, snarling faces that are made in various uh, forms of dance or you know bodily performance. As a scholar Tobin Siebers uh, described it, it's the emblem of of the stupefying look and <laughs> and some of the examples that Lemming points out there's the Mes- Mesopotamian demon Humbaba uh, quote, when he looks at someone, it is the look of death. Yeah, and I think with Humbaba, you get a, a similar dynamic to Medusa where there's this tradition of ritual imagery. It's this kind of like demon head that has some kind of ritual magical power and as, as displayed on objects. But also, of course, Humbaba appears as a character in the mythology. He shows up in the Epic of Gilgamesh as a, as a villain that must be destroyed. Right, and destroy him they do. They, In fact, they decapitate the monster, which is key uh, in all of this as well. There's also the god Bess of Egypt, a household protector god with possible sub-Saharan origins. And despite the Egyptian dependency on side profile imagery, Bess is always depicted facing out toward the viewer. I want to come back to that. And additionally, some early Greek versions of the bodied Medusa apparently have the look of a pre-existing head motif having been basically stamped onto a body. Like, you know, <laughs> kind of coming back to this idea of like, let's, let's just, let's match this up. Let's, let's 
let's provide a body for this. And it's just kind of like almost like the, the ancient Greek version of very rough Photoshop that one might encounter. Yeah, some of the ancient Greek Medusa imagery almost seems like, uh, you know, when people do that, like, bad on purpose MS paint drawing of some, where they, like, mm-hmm. uh, like take a square of somebody's head and paste it onto a weird stick figure. Yeah, yeah. and But I think it, it, it also kind of speaks to the idea that these things were too, like, the, the head, the Gorgonian head was like a distinct image, a distinct pre-existing image. And therefore, the incorporation of it with the body would, would be inherently rough and imperfect. And you would only get a true joining of the two later on. But, uh, but I want to come back to this idea of, of the Gorgonian head staring directly at the viewer uh, yeah. of the art. Uh, but but in, in modern uh, like cinematic interpretations, we see this as well. In fact, we see it fantastically in uh, Ray, Ray Harryhausen's Medusa that we encounter in the original 1981 Clash of the Titans. There is at least, I think there's a, there are a couple of sequences, but there's one scene in particular where she breaks the fourth wall and stares directly directly at the audience. Yeah, it's like the great train robbery, you know. Yeah. <laughs> or like Goodfellas when Joe Pesci shoots the gun at the camera. Yeah, like I think all, you know, those are examples of, of things that are in the tradition of the Gorgonian head as well. Yeah. But I feel like Harry Harryhausen in particular uh, with, with Clash 81, uh, you know, him, he and or the filmmakers, I think they realize that it's not a Gorgon unless it breaks the fourth wall and does look directly at the audience. And this is key because the Gorgonian head is, in all of these examples, pure apotropaic magic. Yeah, totally. I mean, apotropaic magic is one of the most interesting subjects to me. I, I, I love thinking about this stuff. So apotropaic magic means magic that is used to ward off evil or threats or something like that. Uh, you know, uh, a classic example that we'll get to more later, the, you know, the types of talismans that you could have to ward off the evil eye. That'll come up more in, in a bit here. But yeah, I love this idea. Uh, Lemming brings this up. You mentioned it. The idea that in, in ancient art, if you look at a lot of the representations of humanoid figures, humans and gods and stuff uh, from the ancient Near East and the Mesopotamian region, a whole lot of it has... Uh, Figures depicted in profile, facing to the side. Think about ancient Egyptian artwork, a lot of ancient Mm -hmm. Greek artwork. You're going to have heads facing to the side. The Medusa figure and the other apotropaic monster figures, such as Humbaba, are going to be depicted in defiance of this art that often looks directly at you. And it's almost as if the art is seeing you back. You know, you're looking at it and it's looking at you. And I think that the weirdness of this may have to do with these ancient taboos about the evil eye, about being looked at. That like having a piece of art that stares directly into your face as you look at it is in a way inherently threatening, uh, whether the creature depicted is monstrous or not, all the more so if it is monstrous. Uh, so I, I was reading a bit about this in an essay by a uh, Met Museum curator to accompany an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Medusa and hybrid monsters in art history. Uh, her name is uh, Kiki Karaglu, and the essay was called Dangerous Beauty, Medusa and Classical Art. And uh, the way she describes it, uh, so she's talking about the the archaic Gorgon face, the face of the Gorgon before we get the the later derived versions that are associated with the full-fledged myth. Uh, she writes, quote, The archaic Gorgon is always full face, moreover, glaring directly at the viewer. This combination of frontality and monstrosity in a single immediately recognizable figure is what makes the Greek Gorgon such an original and evocative image of radical difference, of the absolute other. Uh, and so she talks about some of the, the apotropaic uses of the Gorgon face that, you know, you go back in history, a lot of the things that would have the Gorgon on it would be not just shields used in battle, but, but for example, funerary monuments, you know, so the, the Gorgon's face on the funeral or the tomb door or something is an apotropaic emblem to protect the tomb from evil. But also this was really interesting to me. Caraglou talks about how there is a transition from archaic Greek art to classical Greek art, where in the classical period, Medusa was, quote, progressively transformed into an attractive young woman. So beginning around the 5th century BCE, art representing Medusa began to transform from mainly terrifying bestial heads with tusks and porcine features and stuff like that 
into increasingly humanoid, feminine, and beautiful. And Caraglou points out that this transition in representation over time applies actually not just to Medusa, but is, is sort of characteristic of a an overall trend in Greek art in how it depicts mythical female monsters and hybrids, including sphinxes, like the, the sphinx story that you get in the uh, Legend of Oedipus, but also sirens and the sea monster Scylla, You've got these archaic depictions in which they are monstrous, inhuman, gross, and all that. And then around the 5th century BCE, these monsters become more notably feminine and beautiful. Yeah, it's an interesting transformation and and one that is going to be key to a number of these different interpretations uh, that we're going to be discussing and the way that Medusa was utilized by subsequent cultures. Absolutely. Uh, Should we take a break? Yeah, let's take a quick break, but we will be right back with more of the Gorgons. All right, we're back. Uh, So we started the episode today by reading from a poem. That poem was a poem by uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's called On the Medusa of Leonardo da Vinci in the Florentine Gallery. And there's a funny thing about this poem. Uh, There is no painting of Medusa by Leonardo da Vinci, at least not that we have. Right. This this painting, or, or in all likelihood, a pair of paintings, are lost works, which, especially when you're talking about Leonardo da Vinci, there's just something endlessly fascinating about that, right? The idea that there were there are these works that he created that, you know, other people saw and attest to existing uh, that are just no longer with us. Um, but I, were, I think I think even Shelley was not actually looking at a da Vinci painting. He was mistaken, right? Right, right. There were... Um, so there were at least two early paintings that were described in, uh, I think, in uh, Life of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, this would have been um, uh, Giorgio Vasari's uh, biography of the artist. Uh, but then later, there's a 1600 painting by a Flemish painter that has at times been wrongfully wrongfully attributed as the work of da Vinci. It's still you know wonderful to behold, but it is it is not authentically da Vinci. Um, but the, yeah, this painting would go on to inspire Percy Shelley in the writing of this poem. Now, one of the things about the, the sort of lore surrounding da Vinci's painting is that is that uh, this painting or pair of paintings, they they supposedly like really captured, uh, you know, the beautiful terror, really captured the magic of the Gorgonian head in a way that like unsettled people when they saw it. Uh, so I, that just makes the this uh, this these particular lost works even more amazing to think about. Yeah, I believe I read uh, – I can't remember in which of our sources it was. It might have been in Lemming. But one of the sources we were looking at talked about how uh, it it might have been da Vinci's painting that was actually the first to show Medusa not just with snakes entwined in her hair but with snakes as her hair. That's her. That's mm. all the hair she's got. Yeah, interesting. And, I, and I, I can't help but take the speculative leap too and try to imagine, oh, well, maybe – Maybe these paintings are lost because da Vinci, uh, with his great art, was able to legitimately capture the power of Medusa's gaze. And these paintings actually petrify people, actually turn people <laughs> to stone. And so they had to be, you know, locked away or destroyed. Uh, right. <laughs> Like a, a Renaissance Van Helsing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as far as I know, they haven't been utilized in, in horror fiction uh, that way. But it seems like a, a, a given. Like somebody, if it hasn't been done already, somebody should do that. Totally. All right, so we talked a little bit earlier about uh, apotropaic magic and the evil eye. Let, let's come back to the evil eye. Yeah, so so Living points out that that uh, you know this is all of course connected to this concept of the evil eye. Medusa's gaze has the power to petrify, and certainly the face is key to the aforementioned um, apotropaic magic. But as with other evil eyes and myths, such one of my favorites is Balor of the the baleful eye in Irish mythology, whose mm-hmm. whose eye is this terrifying beam of death, but is uh, covered by his uh, long uh, mutation brow. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you see this in other various cultures as well, where in, in some form or another, there is an eye that curses whatever it looks at. And oftentimes it is disembodied, uh, which is what we see with the Grey Sisters. Oh, yeah. The Grey Sisters, uh, they share one eye between them and, and Perseus uh, snatches it in order to, to 
you know, muscle them to get information out. Uh, one thing that's funny, though, is I, I can't remember if we talked about this in the last episode or not. Um, what's going on with the tooth? Like, what does the tooth do? <laughs> does the tooth do anything? I don't know. The tooth feels a lot. Uh, the tooth, for one thing, is often abandoned by by in reinterpretations, you know. Um, yeah, it's just the people eye. Don't, yeah. yeah, they don't know quite what to do with the tooth. The tooth, to me, anyway, feels like it's just part of a hag joke, you know. Like, oh, they're old and they have, you know, they don't have many teeth. In fact, they have only one teeth that they all have to share. <laughs> it has a, you know, absurd, like, susical kind of sense to it. Uh-huh. I, I think you're right about that. Yeah, it must just be like it was It was a detail added for color that then nobody could really figure out what to do with it. Yeah, or certainly it's, uh, you know, it, the import has been lost over time. Yeah. Like you can't chew with one tooth. You got to have at least two. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do with it? Um, so anyway, uh, we end up focusing more on the eye. So the general belief is that the concept of the evil eye arises from the universal dislike of being stared at or of being stared down. And there's there's also something more to this as discussed by uh, Jean-Paul Sartre in 1943's Being and Nothingness. So Sartre considered this key to the meaning of the Medusa myth. Medusa represents the objectifying gaze of the other, which robs one of the self. So basically, you know, we're all just bobbing about in the world, self-obsessed. It's all about us. It's our story and how we're interacting with the world. But then there's this stare from another, this petrifying stare. And Sartre wrote that if one looks at something, the one who looks is the center of consciousness. The one one who looks controls the world. But if another looks back at the looker, if the looker knows that they are looked upon, they become an objectified self in the eyes of another. And so the staring other, in this case, say the Gorgonian head or the evil eye, the staring other is the thief of consciousness. Uh, this is interesting, and I think this there's some truth to this that goes beyond just, uh, you know, so Sartre is trying to apply this to his view of, um, uh, you know, absurdity and, and chasing after the idea of the meaning of life, which might be illusory. But uh, th there's something to this in our basic primal fears. Like as soon as the, uh, as soon as you realize you are being looked at, you feel amazingly vulnerable. Being looked at in a way reminds you that you yourself are a not just a subject, but an object, that you are impermanent, that your death is inevitable, that you are subject to forces outside your control. Being looked at and realizing you're being looked at is in many ways the ultimate sort of like uh, terror and loss of control. I mean, why is uh, why is one of the most terrifying things to people like public speaking or public appearances, you know, being uh, up on a stage in front of an audience of people looking at them is horrifying. And it goes beyond just being afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing or something. There's like this deep dread to it. It feels like it gets down to something very basic and very uh, threatening that you can't even look at, almost as if it's the image of Medusa. Yeah, yeah. And certainly if you were, you know, there's sort of the casual objectification of everybody and everything in the world. Uh, again, that goes back to just the way that we think about ourselves and our narrative. But then also if you're if you're actively engaging in objectification and and the objectified individual looks back at you, you know, that uh, it it has a, a powerful effect. Like I think back to uh, the the Ron Frick uh, film from 1992, Baraka, and some of the other subsequent works uh, like this, with uh, in which you have these lengthy. Im they're not images. They're, they're like lengthy uh, film portraits of individuals staring directly back at the camera. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and of course you see this in, in portraiture as well. Like the idea that that the the subject is meeting your gaze it can have this profound effect you know you uh it can feel uncomfortable uh at times even so i think there is yeah there's a lot of, of truth to what he is saying here now all this stuff we're talking about is at the level of like human consciousness you know what kinds of things we with our conscious minds realize about our own nature when we suddenly feel looked at you know does it make you realize you're an object does it make you realize you're impermanent you're going to die and all that but I would say even at the level of you know animals without that level of consciousness probably th there's there's a more practical reality to the threat of being looked at right 
Yeah, we see something like this in the natural world. Uh, you know, the idea of the evil eye, it reminds one of eye spots, uh, adaptations of uh, or, or accidental pattern formation artifacts uh, in a species that serve to either deceive potential predators or prey or to draw a predator's attention away from more vulnerable parts of an animal. Now, with predators in particular, uh, nothing beats a sure thing, right? Or a near sure thing. If an attack does not go exactly as planned, a number of consequences can occur. The prey might get away, in which case energy and time is wasted. Other prey might be alerted and frightened away as well. Worse still, an alert prey animal could have the chance to counterattack and inflict damage, and such an injury can prove deadly. Uh, cheetahs, for instance, rarely go after something like an ostrich because while the payoff for a successful hunt is, is really good, injury can mean starvation when your kills uh, depend on high-speed attacks. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of predation in the natural world, especially of like large land animals, you're not going to be going after healthy adults most of the time. That's a that, that's a dangerous game. You want to pick off like juveniles or the sick and infirm if you can. Right. And uh, and if you're going to pick something off, it's better if it doesn't have its full attention on you. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, keeping an eye on your enemy at all times is a great tactic, though that's that's quite a resource drain. So fooling your enemy into thinking it's being watched at all times. That's an even better tactic. And we see this in countless examples of eye spot evolution. Now, to be clear, not all eye spots are there to mimic watching eyes. Sometimes they're there to, to fool a predator, again, into attacking a less vulnerable part of the animal, or they, they play into mate selection, etc. But in some cases, yes, eye spots seem to serve as anti-predator adaptations. And we also see examples of this strategy's effectiveness outside of natural adaptation. So, uh, for instance, uh, individuals who happen to work in Bengal tiger country have long reported success with backwards wooden masks, uh, masks of a, of a human face that they wear on the back of their heads in an attempt to ward off ambush attacks. Plus, various animal species uh, evolved eye spots that in many cases may serve to protect them from creeping predators like this. Um, one really cool uh, story of, uh, uh, in which one uses eyes like this uh, involves Australian conservation biologist Dr. Neil Jordan, who has been experimenting with the use of painted-on eye spots to protect grazing cattle from lion attacks. Hmm. Uh, this is basically just eyes painted on uh, the, the rumps of, of cattle. And this is all in an effort to cut down on lion-human interactions that can be harmful or deadly on both sides. You know, uh, basically, since lions are ambush uh, hunters, they depend on surprise attacks. And if they think they've been had, they'll abandon the hunt, or at least that's the theory that they're still uh, working on. Now, if that works, that's uh, not just a protection for the cattle. That's obviously a protection for the lions, who are the, you know, the, the conservation uh, object here. Because what, like if a lion attacks cattle, they are at risk of being severely retaliated against by farmers and ranchers. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 all an effort and this was through the the Botswana Predator Conservation Trust uh, this is, uh, that Jordan is involved with here. And yeah, it's about ultimately trying to cut down on the conflict between the lions and the farmers and, and ultimately trying to protect both their interests. But of course, uh, direct eye contact with your with your, with this particular species is not always good. Um, you know, just as direct eye contact with an animal that sees you as prey might deter attack, such eye contact might encourage aggression from a creature that sees you as a potential threat. Um, we we see this with uh, dogs, for instance, uh, and then of course there are plenty of known examples with with primates, uh, particularly gorillas. Uh, in fact, in one case back in 2007, the Rotterdam Zoo engaged in this wonderful. Reversal of those tiger fooling masks. They were uh, these these eye shades that look like averted eyes that make you look like with cartoon eyes, like you're looking to the side. Uh, and they did this to cut down on cases of gorillas responding violently to human eye contact. Oh, that's interesting. It makes me wonder yeah. <laughs> to be in the gorilla enclosures there. If you're like a, a status concerned gorilla, and like just people are constantly walking up, staring directly at you all day, that must be stressful. Yeah, I mean, staring is powerful stuff. I mean, I think even those of us with domestic pets in our house can attest to just, you know, how powerful a stare can be. If you just start staring at, say, your cat or your dog, I'm not, you know, it's not going to result in chaos, but you're going to get a, you're going to get a rise out of them. They're going to realize I'm being stared at. Why am I being stared at? And then likewise, they'll also turn that around on you at times. Oh, yeah. I mean, 
Charlie knows when he's being looked at. If I'm looking at something else in the room and then I suddenly look at him, he will often just start wagging his tail as soon as my (laughs) eyes go to him. So when we're when we're dealing with with staring, you know, we're you know, we're not dealing with a trivial or even purely human uh, uh, conundrum, Uh, though certainly the human experience makes it you know, all the more complicated. Uh, but yeah, we're getting into into something deep that deals with who we are and how we interact with the world around us. Absolutely. I mean, it's not actually surprising to me, the more that I think about it, that the idea of a stare was infused with malevolent magical power throughout the ancient world. The idea that, that the evil eye that, you know, you could, certain people could look at you in a certain way that would curse you or make you sick or, you know, bring harm, magical harm in some way. It's the kind of belief that if you don't grow up in a culture with that, you know, that believes something like that, it can feel weird at first until you start to think about it. Then it just starts almost as if, you know, coming up from some ancient instinct, it just starts to feel more and more true and real the more you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. At least for me. All right, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So at this point, uh, let's turn to uh, the section that we're we're thinking of as the underlying darkness. Getting digging into the the meat behind the head of the Medusa. Getting into this idea of you know what what is there, what keeps drawing us in, and what are we what are we contemplating when we contemplate this image or this myth. So Lemming spends a fair amount of time in the book looking at both the varying ways that the myth has been interpreted and reinterpreted throughout history and the idea that there is something deeply intriguing behind the myth. Quote, a shadow being, an archetypical figure who speaks meaningfully to us all. As we said right at the beginning, I mean, Medusa has been obsessed over and and reinterpreted basically in every generation of humans. I mean – it, it, it is interesting how essentially the, the, the dominant cultural values of every age find a new way to say what the Medusa myth means. Yeah, it's, it, we just keep exploring it and re-exploring it as a potential metaphor for cultural ideas. You know, it's just counterintuitive enough. It has all these different uh, uh, hooks that we can latch on to. It involves several tropes that resonate throughout global culture. The animate head, the beheading of a monster, a female monster with wild, uh, you know, primordial roots, a male hero who must overcome her. And in this last example, Lemming argues that Perseus and Medusa is essentially Marduk and Tiamat all over again. Yeah, and if you're not familiar, Marduk and Tiamat uh, are key to the the Enuma Elish, the, the Babylonian uh ancient Mesopotamian myth in which Tiamat is this, you know, primordial uh, being of the sea, much like Medusa's father, Pontus, was this primordial being of the sea. And then Tiamat gives birth to all the gods and the gods end up in a kind of rebellion war and she turns into this dragon sea monster type creature and she has to be slain by a hero from the civilization, by Marduk, who represents the, the you know, the city of Babylon and the, the order, the new order of the new gods. Right. And of course, the, the gender aspects of, of the Perseus and Medusa myth are very difficult to ignore. And it makes sense that they would be later explored in ways that this simply were not part of the patriarchal ancient Greek worldview. Right. But there's still something essential concerning male-female interaction here, Lemming argues. Uh, an ancient feminine power is destroyed by a new masculine one, specifically the destruction of a matriarchal triple goddess concept, which is actually reflected twice in the myth, you know, both oh, yeah. with the three Gorgons and the three Grey Sisters. So uh, in this, he argues, Medusa is based on the lineage of a matriarchal Gaia, while Perseus is the offspring of the male Zeus. Uh, Later retellings by rationalists such as Diodorus would build on this as well. Yeah, I think a really salient way of interpreting this myth is uh, this is something that Lemming points out specifically in the context uh, of uh, of the recurring motif of decapitation in so many different myths, the, the chopping off of the head of the monster, that it very often happens 
uh, it's accomplished by a hero who represents some kind of like new order of the gods that is that is more orderly and civilized against some kind of primordial earthly old religion or old type of uh, divine being. And there are a ton of examples. You know, there's like David decapitating Goliath uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, yes. uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu decapitate this forest monster Humbaba uh, in the the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Sir Gawain decapitates the Green Knight, and the Green Knight, I think, is often taken to embody some kind of like the old religions of the land, like the pre-Christianized land. Yeah, he's very much the green man. Um, of course, uh, Joe, have you seen the 1984 film Sword of the Valiant? <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, it's wonderful because uh, <laughs> you have Miles O'Keefe as Sir Gawain and then you have Sean Connery himself as the Green Knight. And it's a great scene where his head is lopped off and then he picks his head back up, puts it on his body and starts talking again. That's great. I mean, that also kind of mirrors Medusa, right? Because like the head still is able to act even after it's been cut off. Like the Medusa head is still a weapon that can be used. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the disembodied head is this uh, the, this trope as well. But yeah, so anyway, to bring it back, so of course, uh, you've got the two sides, like Medusa here represents the old order, the Gaians, the, the creatures that are from the earth and original and kind of monstrous and chaotic and untamed, whereas the, the Olympians, represented by Zeus and Athena, uh, they give rise to Perseus, and Perseus is their human hero. He fights for the Olympian order, the new gods, the people, you know, the new kids in town who are in charge now. Yeah. Now, there's uh, this other notion, uh, too, and this is heavily built upon during the medieval period, that Medusa is also an embodiment of feminine danger. Oh, yeah. In the medieval tradition, this all ties in with concepts of courtly love and and so forth uh, from medieval commentators. Uh, Lemming tells us that Medusa did not seem to really be a sexual being to the ancient Greeks, though though certainly there is this trend to make her more and more feminine that we already alluded to. Uh, But medieval authors made her into this embodiment of feminine danger, a true femme fatale in the proper sense of the term, Uh, this this force that could lure you away from the righteous path. And, And this makes even more sense when you consider Athena as her opposite, a paragon of what a patriarchal society wants women to be and uh, and approves of them being. So Athena is strong, but uh, she's also chaste. Uh, She's bashful, uh, uh, as one uh, description put it, and she is unemotional. Yeah, Lemming shows example after example of how you see this throughout medieval writings when Medusa is imagined she is she is the threat of sexual attraction to women, which you know a lot this was a strong theme in a lot of especially like medieval Christian writing, you know, mm-hmm. you can trace this back to St. Augustine, really, that most writings about righteousness seem to be addressed to men and they characterize women as uh, basically as this, this this unaccountable force of danger that will tempt you away from righteousness. Yeah. So it, it should come as no surprise that a lot of these themes end up being re-explored, re-examined, and sometimes, you know, twisted around and, and re-utilized uh, by, by feminist uh, authors and commentators that would come later. Absolutely, yeah. And also even uh, some other trends as well. Um, but uh, I, I want to touch on some other interpretations that Lemming uh, discusses in the book. He points out that 17th century philosopher Francis Bacon saw the Medusa myth, uh, or at least liked to use it, as a solid metaphor for the proper rule of war. <laughs> okay. So choose a winnable fight. Attack when unexpected. Yeah, I love how one of the rules of war here is sneak up on your enemy while they are sleeping. Yes. <laughs> Very cool, Bacon. Uh, Karl Marx saw the Gorgon head as a symbol of capitalism and all of its evils. Uh-huh. Frederick Nietzsche saw it as a symbol of Apollonian struggle against rampant Dionysianism. Uh, uh, so order and discipline versus chaos and hedonism. Mm-hmm. Now, for for my money, the psychoanalytical views of Medusa are are really quite interesting, though. And uh, we see these from the likes of Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, and others. Yeah. uh, One guess, if you're not already familiar, what Freud thinks Medusa is related to. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's gonna involve sex. Uh, so um, advisory: if you're not ready for a big old slice of Freud, uh, then you might want to skip this next part. But I, you know, I think if you're game, then this is interesting. So in 1922, Freud wrote an essay titled "Medusa's Head" or "Das Medusenhaupt," which uh, was published in 1940 after his death. Um, so it, it all, uh, you know, basically comes down to sex and development. Uh, in particular, he saw the Medusa as an embodiment of male castration fears. I alluded to this in our last episode where we were discussing the snakes hanging from belts of the Gorgons in ancient depictions. And uh, I think one of the reasons I found them a little disturbing, or at least, uh, you know, one of the reasons I found them disturbing, is that there is this sort of castration anxiety inherent in the imagery. And, and, And this is key to Freud's view of the monster. So Freud considered castration fear to be a prime immobilizing factor in a male's life, originating in a boy's first view of his mother naked. The absence of a penis and the unavoidable realization that the penis can certainly not exist on a human uh, has an effect. Uh, They realize it can be lost. Uh, Freud contended also that decapitation is a symbol for castration. And I think this makes sense, honestly, because no matter how many horror films you watch, you don't really see anyone going around without a head all that often. It's hard to relate to that kind of a, uh, you know, fatal injury. Um, But you do encounter people all the time that presumably uh, do not have a penis. Females are all in the mind of the the Freud-envisioned male child here, castrated individuals. Um, Furthermore, there's this knowledge that one can live without the member in question, and plenty of people born with it have managed this. Now, it goes without saying, obviously, like a lot of Freud, this is a very male-centric way of interpreting the myth, right? That, like, mm-hmm. he imagines that the young boy sees the world in these in these uh, strange gender terms and sort of views women as men who are lacking something and, and has this psychosexual terror about it. Yeah, yeah, and definitely we're not we're not saying this is the way to view the world, but this oh, was, God, this, no, was no. this is what Freud wrote and uh uh he also further argued that snakes are phallic symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. And uh, that a plethora of phallic symbols also translates to castration fears. And this actually this reminded me of something um that I had read about uh, previously. I believe this was in Walter Stevens' book, Demon Lovers, Witchcraft, Sex, and the Crisis of Belief, where he was discussing castration anxiety myths of penis theft by witches um, that was common during the era of European witchcraft persecution. The idea was that witches would go around stealing penises from men and then collect them in bird's nests high in trees. Again, we see a grouping, a plethora of phallic emblems that is involved in a, uh, in a myth or a story that embodies castration fears uh, of, of men during this particular era. Now, Freud's not done here. He also contends that an erection is a reminder that one still has a penis. So the petrification aspects of the, of, the, of Medusa's myth uh, tie in here. Mm-hmm. And he argues that the, um, the, uh, the apotropaic power of the Gorgon's head emblem is the emblem of female genitalia and male castration anxiety. <laughs> you know, I would say when you see it all laid out like this, at least to me, Freud's take seems kind of ridiculous. Like the Medusa represents like castration anxiety and the young man's psychosexual horror at female anatomy as, as Freud imagines it. Um, but then also the, the severing of the head represents castration anxiety. I think this is one of those cases where Freud probably sounds more convincing if you're reading him build his own case rather than seeing it all presented in disinterested summary. <laughs> Yeah, but probably so. And it's one of those things where it's like it's really interesting to read, and I'd and I'd be willing to entertain that 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 there is something to this, you know, in the you know the shadow archetype uh, of of Medusa as we encounter it. But uh, you know, I it, as with these other things, as with say geo mythology, you know, I'm not going to put all my eggs in this one basket. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what what Freud talks about it, you could in a way think of as a kind of psycho mythology. Yeah. He's like, uh, the stuff he's saying is not like based on controlled experiments or anything. He's, he's sort of like weaving a story that makes sense to him about, you know, how anxieties about sex and, and how people think about sex and death and stuff it, it, it pervades all of the imagery that we come up with. 
Now, other thinkers, though, would echo at least some aspects of, of Freud's take here, uh, including a French feminist critic, Sarah Kaufman, who wrote of the mixed horror and pleasure that women's genitals arouse in men. Now, Carl Jung, for his part, uh, his interpretation was less sexual, but it still can concern the power of the unconscious. He saw Medusa as a chaotic element tied to creativity and destruction, and in general, Medusa uh, and Athena as archetypes connected to how women are viewed. And speaking of how women are viewed, there, there's, of course, a lot of feminist consideration of Medusa, including Kaufman, who we just mentioned. Uh, one example that Lemming brings up is that of New York University law professor Amy Adler, author of Medusa, A Glimpse of the Woman in First Amendment Law. Oh, this part was interesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Adler touches on the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court considers live nude dancing unprotected by the First Amendment, while pornographic film is protected. Hmm. And so the, the idea here, uh, as Adler lays it out, is that live female nudity uh, is, is, t- is still too threatening, too petrifying for the male observer. But just as the mirrored shield of Athena allows Perseus to gaze upon Medusa without being turned to stone, so too does the medium of film allow the male to consider female nudity without fear. The mirrored shield of Athena is the male gaze itself. It tames the female body, making it passive and, quote, removing its power to return the male viewer's gaze. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting read on this. Yeah, I did, too. And again, it gets back to the power of being stared back out by the thing that is objectified, by the person that is objectified. And of course, in addition to this, I mean, Lemming Chronicles, there are a ton of ways that Medusa has been sort of uh, recaptured by feminist thought, especially throughout the second half of the 20th century, basically just as as a figure to be sympathized with and celebrated rather than as like the monster of the story, you know, to recognize that like uh, Medusa is, if we take the story literally, the wronged party. And in a way, this all comes back to – it's very similar to the romantic take. So in the romantic period, we there was a lot of rethinking of the Medusa story that sympathized with Medusa. And I think the Percy Shelley poem that we started by reading today is one of those works of literature. Absolutely. In the same way that, say, uh, Percy Shelley in Prometheus Unbound would show you know, his and his generation's uh, large sympathies with sort of the rebel parties or the characters who might have been considered villains in previous tellings of stories uh, that, you know, the the story of Prometheus Unbound is a play in which the Prometheus who defies the gods uh, is sort of like uh, he and his allies are the heroes and, and Jove, the king of the gods, is is the villain and he gets slapped down by the Demogorgon, you know, something previously imagined as a demon, but which Shelley imagined instead as this kind of like potency or, or void of potential. Mm. And, and now a, a fairly recent uh, twist on uh, on Medusa imagery is that uh, is a sculpture that I, I think you've seen. I think it was on the, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module at some point. Uh, it was by uh, Luciano Garbati, um, a, um, an Argentine-Italian Argentine, artist based in Buenos Aires. And basically he did a reversal of the, of, of the classic statue of um, – of Perseus holding the head of Medusa, but in his statue, it is Medusa holding the decapitated head of Perseus. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, we've touched on, on all the, the problematic aspects of, of Medusa, uh, her character, you know, is this, this victimized uh, woman who is made into a monster that is further victimized and ultimately, uh, you know, violently murdered by a male hero. And this at least uh, turns that around and uh, allows her to get the upper hand. And so there's, just, there's something refreshing about this particular statue. You know, I like art like this because I think a lot of times we're, we're faced with a dilemma and, you know, it comes up a lot when we're dealing with ancient myths where, you have a story that you want to be able to sort of uh, retell and re-explore and celebrate in a way. But of course, you know, like most ancient myths, it, it has some kind of uh, either explicit or implicit values that are really not our values anymore. Right. And, uh, and so, like, what do you do with that? Do you, do you try to, like – change the myth? Do you, do you try to like ignore parts of it that, that feel icky today? And I, I think my take is that like you let the myth be the myth 
And and that's what it is. But you also create complementary art, right? Like you don't try to change mm-hmm. the story of Perseus and Medusa, but you can also write a novel in which Medusa kills Perseus or make an awesome statue in which she's got his head by the hair. Yeah, absolutely. And as we discussed in the first episode on Medusa, like this is how mythology works. This is how the the telling and the retelling of these stories has always worked. So you totally have license to do this. Plus public domain. <laughs> right. Oh, public domain Perseus. Is, is Hesiod going to come and sue you? Hell no. <laughs> no, I do want to know what happens after this, because there were several things depending on, on Perseus after the encounter. So does Medusa go from here and, like, uh, help out Danny and, uh, you know, all that stuff? Or is is that just left on its own now? Yeah, that's that's what's kind of beautiful about this, right? This could be the very beginning of a story. You could have a, a, a novel or at least a you know short story or a novella of Medusa that begins with her defeating Perseus. Uh, mm-hmm. Because then what happens? Because certainly Athena is still in play, uh, still presumably more than happy to work against Medusa. Um, and then, yeah, the, basically, yeah, if somebody write this so I can read it. This sounds great. <laughs> Athena's like the Terminator. It can't, she cannot be bargained with. She cannot be reasoned with and will not stop until mm-hmm. you are dead unless you go to Mount Olympus and you get mm-hmm. her first. That's true. Yeah. After all, the Gorgonian head uh, is a ultimately a god-created uh, power. It works on titans. Why not on the gods themselves? All right, so I wanted to end today just by real quickly uh, jumping off to a couple of other things that are really only tangentially related to Medusa. They don't have to do so much with the myth, but uh, are just uh, scientific concepts that have been related to it in various ways. So last year, uh, which would be 2019, there was a new finding published in the Journal of Virology about a recently discovered so-called giant virus. Now, giant vi- viruses in general are, are a very interesting subject. Uh, for a long time, pretty much all the viruses that we knew about were submicroscopic, you know, extremely small, very simple compared even to single-celled organisms like bacteria. Viruses in general are not thought usually to be alive. I guess it depends on how you define alive, but they're generally not thought to be alive because what they do is they contain packages of genetic material that can take over a host cell and sort of turn that cell into a factory for making more viruses, but they don't have the machinery to survive and reproduce on their own. They can't eat, they can't breathe, they can't reproduce without a host cell. In a way, a biological virus is a lot like a computer virus as a good point of comparison. It can't spread if it's just burned onto a CD sitting on your desk, right? It needs to be planted into active hardware. It needs to be on a machine that is running and connected to something in order to spread. But in recent years, we've discovered that there are some viruses that are bigger and hardier and more complex than previously known viruses. And these are now usually referred to as giant viruses. Uh, they're, they're a lot larger than normal viruses, sometimes even larger, as large as or larger than bacteria. And uh, sometimes they look kind of like furry D20s, <laughs> like, uh, like <laughs> D20 dice. I've got a picture here for you to look at, Robert. This is a picture of the one I'm going to get to in just a minute. But yeah, it's like got all these spots spikes all over, but it looks basically like you could roll it for a critical hit. Yeah, yeah. When, especially when it's uh, uh, illustrated in bright yellow and red, it, it looks like a natural 20. Uh, so whereas a normal virus might have numbers of genes in the single digits, you know, some viruses might have like five genes or nine genes, giant viruses can have hundreds of genes or a thousand genes. And in uh, 2003, researchers in France published a description of the uh, Acanthamoeba polyphaga mimivirus, a relatively huge virus that preys on amoeba, which uh, I, I believe this virus was discovered in a water cooling tower. I'm not sure about that, but I think so. Um, Many of the other giant viruses that have been discovered since then were found in these weird, extreme places. I I was reading an article in The Atlantic by Sarah Zhang from March 2019, and it mentioned that uh, these things had also turned up in an Austrian sewage plant, as well as water off the Chilean coast, and you may have heard this one, in 30,000-year-old Siberian permafrost. Mm. Uh, The strain from this permafrost was a giant virus called uh, Pithovirus sabiricum. (laughs) 
And uh, even after being trapped in ice for tens of thousands of years, this giant virus was still infectious. Wow. When they, yeah, they thawed it out and they set some amoebas out as bait next to it. And the pithovirus uh, apparently went to work. The amoebas died off and then their dead bodies contained fragments of this giant virus. And the story, I mean, I, I've seen some researchers kind of poo-poo this uh, to say, like, this is not the main thing to worry about with climate change. But uh, they, they may be right, but it does just make me wonder what kind of goodies we're going to release as we keep thawing stuff that's been frozen for tens of thousands of years through climate change. <laughs> um, and I believe this this actually was the premise of a horror movie by um, uh, Larry uh, Fessenden. Uh, what was the name of that? It was uh, – Oh, I don't think I know this one. It was called The Last Winter, uh, and it had uh, it starred Ron Perlman. Oh yeah, Fessenden did a uh, he did a, a killer catfish movie called Beneath. Ooh, Have you I haven't seen, seen this that one. one. No, oh, no, you should watch Beneath. It's uh, <laughs> it's I don't want to spoil too much. I mean, I, I think it, it's kind of satirical, but it. Uh, there's one part where these characters are trapped on a boat as this like googly eyed catfish is picking them off one by one. And at one point, one of them screams at the catfish like, what do you want from us? <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that Sarah Zhang article I mentioned is primarily focused on the uh, this virus that was newly described in 2019 by Japanese researchers in the Journal of Virology. And um so apparently this giant virus came from a sample of mud that was taken from a hot spring somewhere in Japan. And here's how it ties back in. The new virus has been named the Medusa virus. It's named after a, uh, a response it elicits from amoebas when it attacks. So a researcher named uh, Masaharu Takamura at the Tokyo University of Science noticed that when he observed this giant virus uh, attacking amoebas of the species Acanthamoeba castellani, some of the amoebas would get infected and they would burst open and spill their contents everywhere when they died. But some of the amoebas would instead shrink down and basically turned to stone. They would form a type of hard mineral shell known as a cyst. Uh, so the giant virus can, in some cases, petrify the host. Wow. The Medusa effect in action. <laughs> uh, and I, I should mention that Zhang's article shows a picture of Takamura where he's got his computer desktop in the background. And the background of the desktop is Ruben's painting of Medusa's severed head. I don't know if that was posed on purpose or if he just happened to have that there anyway. Huh. Um, he's a little bit obsessed with this myth or something. But anyway, this viral discovery was mainly interesting because of some complex features of the virus itself. So the, this virus, the Medusa virus, had um, histones, which are these protein features usually found in more complex eukaryotic cells, cells like plants and animals and amoebas. And it's used for uh, coiling and organizing DNA to make it compact when you've got a lot of DNA in a cell nucleus. Normally, a virus doesn't need something like this. Also, there was, repeat, uh, there was evidence of repeated gene transfer throughout history between this giant virus and its amoeba host. Uh, the amoeba genome had genes originally from the virus. The virus genome had genes originally from the amoeba. Hmm. And then there was also a gene coding for DNA polymerase, which is uh, used in complex living cells to synthesize DNA. And the researchers believe that this DNA polymerase gene could tell us really interesting things potentially about the history of eukaryotic life and its relationship to viruses. Uh, to quote from Takamura, don't know if he's right, but what he says is, quote, genomics research of the giant virus indicates that there is likely a relationship between the Medusa virus and the origin of eukaryotic life. And another one of the researchers, Dr. Ginki uh, Yoshikwa from Kyoto University, uh, says that, that our DNA polymerase, the DNA polymerase of eukaryotes, quote, probably originated from Medusa virus or one of its relatives. Now, that's their take, but th that's a very interesting possibility that, like, th this key feature of uh, the cells that form more complex life on Earth could have come from viruses, Oh, wow. And then if we, we turn back to the myth, which, again, is, has just been, you know, applied to this discovery, uh, you know, but once, one can't help but think about the connections here uh, to the, this idea of, of Medusa as this Gaian entity, right? I mean, because right. this would mean we, we are all children of Medusa. Hail Medusa. <laughs> all right. So there you have it. Medusa, uh, in two parts uh, here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there. Um, 
how you interpret the myth of Medusa and Perseus, uh, how some of this information we've presented alters or backs up your interpretation, changes your interpretation. What are your favorite Medusas from art, uh, from cinema, from comic books, etc.? We'd love to, to hear from you about all of that. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure that you rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, Those are the things you can do that will help support the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.